Almighty God, we bless and exalt your holy name. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the book of Hebrews that encourages us, builds us up, and draws us closer to Jesus. Bless this study. Let it be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 11, the Hebrew writer, when talking about Melchizedek, he says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Here in this section here, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, we find a section where the Hebrew writer is offering a strong rebuke to these Jewish Christians. Here in these verses, he is rebuking them because they were not growing and maturing in the Lord. Now, this rebuke that we find in this section is actually going to continue. It's going to continue on in the chapter 6. And we're going to study chapter 6 in this video. But before we get into chapter 6, let's just quickly touch on some things that we learned in chapter 5. Remember, the main point of chapter 5 was to talk about the priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus. It was to talk about how Jesus is the high priest of God's people under the new covenant. Remember, the priesthood of Jesus is a recurring theme throughout the book of Hebrews. In the section that we studied last time, verses 1 through 9, the whole point of that was to emphasize how Jesus is a more superior high priest than any high priest that was found under the old covenant. He's more superior than Aaron and any of Aaron's descendants. And in the first few verses here, the Hebrew writer takes some time to really talk about the qualifications of a high priest. In fact, he brings up two very specific qualifications of a high priest. First, he says the high priest has to be appointed by God. Men don't pick the high priest. God picks the high priest. He picked the high priest under the old covenant, and he also picked the high priest under the new covenant. Under the new covenant, the high priest that God has chosen for his people is his son, Jesus Christ. And so God appointed Jesus to the position of high priest. Jesus met that qualification. And then the second qualification he also met was the qualification of being a man. Jesus was not only God while he was on earth, but he was also fully man. As a man, he was able to endure every struggle and every temptation we face in our lives. The only exception is he did not sin. He never committed one sin in his life, but he went through the same struggles that we go through. He went through thirst. He went through hunger. He experienced pain, betrayal, grief, frustration. 
all of the things we go through in our lives, Jesus went through them as well. He went through a very difficult life. He suffered so much. In fact, the interesting thing about his sufferings is his sufferings also perfectly qualified him to be our high priest. You see, through the sufferings of Jesus, Jesus was able to learn obedience to God. He was able to understand the struggles and the pains and the temptations that we go through in our lives. His sufferings, the Hebrew writer says, the sufferings he endured in the flesh qualified him, perfectly qualified him to be the high priest of God's people. In fact, he is a high priest, not according to the order of the Levitical priesthood. Instead, he's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's what it says in verse 6. Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is a high priest not according to the order that was given to the Israelites and their law, but instead he is a high priest according to the order of this mysterious Old Testament character. This Old Testament character that's only mentioned two times in the whole Old Testament. The Hebrew writer says that Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek, and he's going to say more about that in chapter 7. But beginning in Hebrews 5 and verse 11 and going through much of chapter 6, he pauses and he offers a sharp rebuke to his, to his target audience. In Hebrews 5 and verses 11 through 14, he actually expresses some frustration and some pessimism because he was not sure that these Christians could fully understand this topic of the priesthood of Jesus that he was talking about. He expressed some pessimism about their ability to understand this meaty subject because they were not growing in the faith. They were not spiritually maturing in the Lord. They were still on the meek milk of the word instead of being on the meat of the word. In other words, they were still little infants and babies in Christ. They were not spiritually maturing. And he rebukes them for that in Hebrews 5, verse 11 through 14. And this rebuke will continue on into chapter 6. So in Hebrews 6, beginning with verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 8. He says, Therefore, after rebuking them for still being on the milk of the word and not growing as they should be in the Lord, he says in Hebrews 6 and verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gifts and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. He says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. 
ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being burnt, close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. This is a sharp and very strong rebuke that the Hebrew writer gives to these Jewish Christians. In fact, some even say that this is the sharpest and strongest rebuke that is found in all the Bible. And so let's just spend a few moments really trying to break down what the Hebrew writer is talking about here. And and let's begin with what we find in verse number one. Notice how after talking about how these Christians were still on the milk of the word and they were not even at a point where they could discern good behavior from evil behavior. After beginning this rebuke in chapter 5, in Hebrews 6 and verse 1, he talks about how there needs to come a time when Christians press on to maturity. There needs to come a time when Christians get off of the milk of the word and they need to get on the meat of the word. And someone may ask the question of, what is the milk of the word? What, what are these elementary principles of God's word that, that the Hebrew writer is saying that we need to get off of at some point? Well, he actually tells us in the first two verses of this chapter. First, he says that when it comes to the elementary principles of God's word, one of those things includes the issue of repentance. The issue of turning away from sin and turning to God. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, Jesus said that unless one repents, he will spiritually perish. And then in Acts 17 and verse 30, the apostle Paul says there was a time when God overlooked the ignorance of men, but now, today, he requires that every man, everywhere, repent. Repentance, the idea of having godly sorrow towards sin. The idea of turning away from sin. The idea of having a change of mind towards sin, which leads to a change in your life. That is a core and foundational principle of the gospel. And so is the issue of faith toward God. In Hebrews 11 and verse 6, the Hebrew writer says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith in God, belief and trust in God. That's a core aspect of the gospel. And then he also mentions instructions about washings. Instructions about washings. It is that particular part of the unit that gives the most people, gives most people the most trouble. And so let me give you some some options as to what the Hebrew writer may be referring to when he talks about instructions about washings. When he talks about instructions about washings here, he could be referring to water baptisms. And yes, I said water baptisms. The original Greek word that is used here for washings is plural. And that still will go in line with water baptism because even in the time of the New Testament, there were a couple of different kinds of water baptisms. There was John's baptism. John the Baptist, he baptized people unto repentance. He baptized Jesus. He baptized many of the disciples of Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, we can read about a time when the apostle Paul reached Ephesus, or he reached Ephesus, and he came across some men 
who had only been baptized unto John's baptism. They didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. They didn't know anything about the baptism that Jesus had authorized. And so when Paul found out about that, he told those men, you need to be baptized again, but this time you need to be baptized unto Jesus Christ because John's baptism is no longer in force. And so there was John's baptism that many of the Jewish people were very familiar with. And then there's also the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse 4. The water baptism that disciples have authority to administer unto the lost for the forgiveness of their sins. You got John's baptism. You got Jesus' baptism. You have John's baptism that was unto repentance. You have Jesus' baptism that enabled people to receive forgiveness of sins and be added unto the church of our Lord. And so that could be what the Hebrew writer is making mention of, that Christians need to have a good understanding of the baptism that is now in force. The one baptism is not John's baptism. Instead, it is the baptism of Jesus. It is the baptism that disciples can administer once the lost confess their faith in Christ, repent of their sins, and desire to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. Those are the two different kinds of water baptisms mentioned in the New Testament. But then you also have something else that, that he could be referring to, and that is the various Jewish ceremonial washings or cleansings. Among the Jewish people, even in the Old Covenant, there were different kinds of purifications and cleansings that they went through. And maybe the Hebrew writer is saying that you need to understand that those things are no longer necessary. Now that you are a Christian, those things are no longer important. He could be talking about the various kinds of water baptisms. He could be talking about these Jewish ceremonial cleansings, or he could be referring to both and saying that, Christians need to understand that the only thing that is necessary now is water baptism into Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Instructions about washings. They're elementary principles of the gospel, and so is the laying on of, of hands. Laying on of hands. Now, when the New Testament uses that language, it actually uses it in a couple of different ways. First, when the Bible uses the language laying on of hands, sometimes it's being used just to talk about approval. The elders of a church sent out Paul and Barnabas on a preaching journey. They laid their hands on them as signs of approval. Sometimes laying on of hands is not miraculous. It's just showing approval that you approve of somebody going and doing any work for God. But other times, and most of the time when this language is used, it's talking about imparting miraculous spiritual gifts. In the early church in the first century, the church had miraculous gifts in it. There were Christians who could prophesy, who could speak in tongues, speak in foreign languages that they had never formally learned. They could raise the dead. They could do all kinds of miraculous things, but the only way they received that ability from what we learn in Romans chapter 1 and also in Acts chapter 8 is they had to have an apostle impart the gifts to them. 
The apostles imparted miraculous spiritual gifts to other Christians by laying their hands on them. That is how the apostles transferred the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit to Christians in the first century. And eventually these miraculous gifts came to an end. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that they actually came to an end when God's perfect revelation was given, when the Bible was fully given, the miraculous gifts ceased. They were no longer needed. But the idea of miraculous gifts and imparting spiritual gifts, that's, that's an elementary principle of the gospel, and so is the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead, that, only include, that not only includes our Lord's resurrection on the third day, but it also includes our resurrection. It also includes the fact that we are one day going to be raised when Jesus comes again. And then he mentions eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the things we've done in our bodies, whether those things be good or whether those things be bad. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 27, the Hebrew writer himself says, it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And then in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives us a judgment day scene when he talks about the time when he's going to come back one day and all the nations are going to be gathered before him. And he's going to separate the righteous from the wicked like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and the righteous will go to heaven to be with God forever, but the wicked will go to hell to receive eternal judgment from God. All of these things, brothers and sisters, are part of the elementary principles of the gospel. They are core aspects of the gospel foundational aspects of the gospel. There are things that we need to know, we need to master, we even need to revisit it and learn again from time to time, but there also needs to come a time when we move on from these things. When after we master these things, we press on to spiritual maturity, we press on to learn deeper truths from the word of God. There's nothing wrong with rehearsing and revisiting the foundational aspects of our faith, but there needs to come a time when we challenge ourselves to learn even more about God's Word, to dig deeper into some of the meaty things of the Scriptures. We need to learn about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's, that can be a difficult concept. We need to learn from the book of Romans. Many consider Romans to be one of the most difficult books of the New Testament. It is certainly probably one of the most abused books in the New Testament today. Romans has some very difficult subjects, some very difficult concepts, and we need to try to understand those concepts. We need to try to understand the writings of the prophets. We need to try to understand the deep truths that are found in the parables of Jesus. I mean, so often people look at the parables of Jesus as, as easy to understand, but they fail to realize that there is a lot of layers to that onion. There are a lot of things that Jesus is teaching that go beyond the surface, and it takes a spiritually mature mind to really get the most out of the parables that he's teaching. There is a lot there, and most of those parables are very, very meaty, and there's a lot beyond the surface. 
And we also need to strive to understand Revelation to the best of our ability. Revelation, a book that is full of a lot of apocalyptic, figurative language. That is a book that even as we spiritually mature, we need to try to study and, and gain understanding of. The point of the first three verses of Hebrews 6 is just to emphasize how after as Christians, after we mastered the elementary principles of the gospel, we need to move on, we need to press on to maturity, and we need to strive to grow and learn more and more. In fact, in verses 4 through 8, the writer then goes on to talk about what can happen to a Christian if he doesn't listen to his rebuke here. If a Christian doesn't grow in the Lord, the point the writer makes in verses 4 through 8 is eventually a Christian will fall away. Eventually he will drift away. Eventually he will leave the Lord. Again, here in the book of Hebrews, we find another example of teaching from the writer that clearly shows us that it is possible for a Christian to leave the Lord. It is possible for a Christian to fall from grace. It is possible for a Christian to give up their salvation. In verse number four, he says it is possible for someone to have been enlightened by the word of God and to have tasted of the heavenly gift of God's word and his amazing grace and to have become a partaker of the blessings of the Holy Spirit, but then still eventually fall away. Eventually leave Jesus. He makes this point very clear in verse number six when he says, when describing Christians in this context, he says, and then they have fallen away. Once a Christian falls away, it is impossible, he says, to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. I got to tell you that this verse often gives a lot of people trouble. Often when people read that verse, they, they panic, they get scared, and they ask questions like, well, if a Christian falls away from God, is it impossible for them to come back to God? Is it impossible for them to get back into a right relationship with God? I can't begin to tell you how many times I've even heard Christians ask me that before. So let's clear up any misunderstandings that people may have about this verse. My dear friends, when Paul says in this verse that once a Christian falls away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. When he says that, he is not saying that it is impossible for a fallen away Christian to repent if he wants to. He is not saying that it is impossible for a fallen away Christian to return to the Lord if he wants to. Instead, here in this verse, he's talking about Christians who leave the Lord and they enjoy being in that condition. They enjoy wallowing and, and reveling in sin. He is saying that when a Christian falls away and gets comfortable in his situation, if he or she gets comfortable and enjoys wallowing and reveling in sin, they'll never reach a point where they even want to repent. 
They'll never reach a point where they will even try to seek God's forgiveness instead of seeking God's forgiveness through repentance. What he says these kind of Christians will do is they will continue to crucify the Son of God all over again. They'll continue to kill Jesus all over again. They will put him to open shame. They will despise the very Savior that at one time they submitted to. That's what he's saying. Here he's not saying that it is impossible for a Christian to repent if he wants to. Instead, he is saying that when a Christian doesn't grow and when a Christian leaves the Lord and begins wallowing in sin and enjoys being in that situation, he will never reach a point probably where he will seek the Lord's forgiveness through repentance. He'll continue being a child of Satan. That's what can happen to us if we don't grow. And then in verses 7 through 8, to bring this point home, he gives a parable. And talking about spiritual growth, he says, just as God sends rain on the earth, and he expects a crop or some produce, the same is true with the Christian. When God plants a Christian in his vineyard, he expects some produce. He expects a crop. Jesus says he expects us to bear some fruit. And when we don't burn fruit, the writer says we'll eventually be burned up. That means that we're going to receive judgment from the living God. It reminds me actually what Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower in Matthew, the 13th chapter. If you remember in Matthew chapter 13, when talking about the various kinds of soils, and the soils in the parable represent people's hearts. The seed represents the word of God. The sower represents the teacher of God's word. And the soils represent people's hearts. And when talking about the seed that fell on the thorny ground, he said this about the thorny ground in verse number 22. The one on whom seed was sown, this is Matthew 13, 22, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word of God, he hears it, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and he doesn't fall away. He doesn't leave the Lord. He doesn't stop filling the pew on Sunday. Instead, what does he become? He becomes unfruitful. See, here, Jesus is not talking about the Christian who falls away. That's the previous illustration. That's the person where the seed falls on the rocky places. That's the person, Jesus says, who hears the word of God, believes it, but eventually falls away. That, that's not this person here. This person who has a thorny soil is the person who may come to church every single Sunday. And they fill the pew every single Sunday and they come to all the Bible classes, but they're still unfruitful. They don't grow, they don't serve, they don't minister to, they don't connect with their brothers and their sisters in Christ. What Jesus talks about there in that part of the parable may describe more Christians in the church than any other part of the parable. What Jesus talks about there is the same thing the Hebrew writer is talking about in Hebrews 6. He's talking about Christians who don't grow, who don't bear fruit, who are unfruitful. The point is, even those people are going to be lost. 
And so that ends the rebuke of Hebrews chapter 6. Let's conclude by just saying a few things about the last few verses. And I'll just read it, make a few comments, and then that, that'll be the video, okay? Let's go back to Hebrews 6, start with verse 9. After rebuking these Christians because they were not growing properly, in verse 9 of Hebrews 6, he says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises for God, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his promise interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. A few quick observations here. This is just a lengthy section. I'm sorry I don't have a whole lot of time to go through a lot of details here. I only got about 10 more minutes. So let me just give you a few things uh, to really consider and highlight from this section. First, I want you to notice how in verse number 9, how after rebuking these Christians strongly in the first eight verses, here, the Hebrew writer transitions, and he starts encouraging them. He rebukes them in the first part of the chapter, but then he encourages them beginning in verse number 9. And so he does exactly what a preacher is supposed to do. He exhorts and he rebukes. He rebukes and he encourages. He gives balance. He says that while it is possible for a Christian to fall away and leave the Lord, he expected better things from these Christians. Even though they were not growing properly yet, he still had high expectations for them. In verse number 10, he lets them know that God noticed all the good things that they were doing. God noticed their faith. God noticed their work. God noticed how they were ministering to the saints. God saw every good thing they were doing, and he was not going to forget that. Their good work was not going unnoticed. And so in verse 11 through 12, he encourages them to be diligent, to be steadfast, and to imitate those who have faith and patience towards the promises of God. Specifically, he tells them, be like Abraham. Be like Abraham. I mean, if there was any hero among the Jewish people 
It, it was Abraham. It was Abraham and it was David and Moses, those three. They, those were their Mount Rushmore guys. Abraham was the father of their nation. He was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 12, God made some very important promises to Abraham. And, and that's actually what the Hebrew writer is alluding to when he mentions Abraham and how God was faithful to the promises he made to Abraham. He is harking back to the three promises that all the Jews were very familiar with that are found in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that from him was going to, become, was going to come a great nation. That was going to be the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jewish people. This nation began with the birth of Isaac. Abraham, at 100 years old, had a son with his wife, Sarah. They named him Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And these 12 sons had children, and their children had children, and their children had children, and eventually their descendants became slaves in the land of Egypt. And then eventually God delivered them from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, where by then they were a great nation that God had built and nurtured himself. God promised Abraham a great nation. And he also promised in Genesis 12 that this great nation will receive a land of their own, a land that flowed with milk and honey, a land that's called Canaan. God was going to give them this land, and God also promised Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 3 that from this nation would come someone who ultimately would make it possible for every person from any nation to become a child of God, and that promise is typically referred to as the seed promise. That promise is a reference to, a reference to Jesus and how Jesus would come through the nation of Israel who came from Abraham, and Jesus would make it possible for all of us to be saved. Those were the promises that God made Abraham and the Hebrew writer says that Abraham waited patiently on those promises. God swore by himself that he was going to fulfill those promises. God made an oath of his own name that he was going to fulfill those promises. And Abraham waited patiently on those promises to be fulfilled. And even though Abraham died, long before the promises were fulfilled, he still knew God was going to do what he said. You know, it is interesting how the nation of Israel was not a nation until several hundred years after Abraham was already dead. By the time they reached Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, Abraham's been dead for a long time. And by the time they reached the promised land and conquered it at the end of the book of Joshua, Abraham has been dead for a long time. And by the time Jesus comes into the world to make it possible for all of us to be adopted into God's family, Abraham has been dead for 2,000 years. Abraham never lived to see the fulfillment of these three promises from, from God, but while he died before they were fulfilled, when God made the promise to him in his mind, they were just as good as done. They were just as good as being already fulfilled because he knew God was faithful. God was trustworthy. He knew God wouldn't make promises to him that he could not keep. 
So God kept every promise he made to Abraham, even though Abraham died before they were fulfilled. And the whole point of this is to just make the point that just like God was faithful to Abraham, he's going to be faithful to us. Abraham is the case study that we need to consider when it comes to the faithfulness of God. Just like God kept every promise he made to Abraham, he'll be faithful to keep every promise he's made to us. He's incapable of lying. When he makes an oath, he will keep the oath. God never makes promises that he will not keep. And so the whole point of that, when you look at that, just remember, the whole point of this is God is going to be faithful to his people. He's always been faithful to his people, and so don't leave him. Don't abandon him. Learn from Abraham. Be steadfast in your faith. Understand that God is trustworthy. We can take refuge in God. All we got to do is just read the Old Testament and we'll easily see that God is always, he's always been faithful to his people. And so because we serve a living and faithful God, that means we have a real hope, the Hebrew writer says. We have a real hope because it is founded in Jesus. Going back to verse 19, he says, this hope we have as an anchor. It is an anchor of the soul, a hope of sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Notice how our hope is actually in the very presence of God. It is within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Hebrew writer is saying here that we have a real and living hope because it is founded upon a real and living Savior. It is founded upon Jesus. Jesus is where our hope lies. And because our hope is in him, we can trust with absolute certainty that God will keep his promise to bring us into heaven, just like he kept all the promises he made to Abraham. And so the Hebrew writer rebukes them in this chapter, but then he turns around and he tries to say some encouraging words to them to motivate them to, motivate them to press on and mature in Christ. Now, after he does that in chapter 7, he's going to try to go back and talk about this Melchizedek thing. Hopefully now their ears are going to be open and more receptive to his difficult teaching, his meaty teaching about how Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We'll pick up there in about a week when we study chapter 7, but for now, I hope this study will bless you. I hope it will help you. I hope, if anything, it will motivate you to keep your hope in Jesus, to grow spiritually, to have complete confidence in the faithfulness of God because God is good. God cannot lie. God has made promises to us, and he will be faithful to keep those promises, but we got to make sure we're faithful to him and that we stay in a relationship with his son, Jesus. And so thank you for studying with me. We'll pick up with Hebrews 7 in our next, in our next Bible class video.